might be helpful to have your Bibles also turn. We're going to look at these two passages, but it might be helpful to have your Bibles just turn to as a reference to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to mention several verses there that uh, you may just find helpful to have your eyes on at the same time uh, I'm talking about them. Romans chapter 5. When you read a history book, you typically are reading about the decisive moments. There's too much history uh, to record everything in human events. And so a history book just tells you what happened at decisive moments, a, a battle that was won or lost that shifted the course of human events, a, a nation that stood up, a person that stood up at a very particular critical time, you, you read about turning points. 490 B.C., the Battle of Marathon, where the Greeks turned away the mighty Persian army. 1815, when Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo. 1826 and Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and a hundred years later Martin Luther King's march on Washington, D.C. for civil rights. 1944, uh, the invasion of Europe at Normandy. These are all very familiar to us in some way because they, they represent... A shifting of events, a very significant person standing up or a nation standing up or battle being won mimics, uh, movies often mimic history. And so if you enjoy movies like Star Wars or you like Lord of the Rings or you like the Chronicles of Narnia or you like movies like Braveheart or The Patriot, All those movies have the same kind of of theme where a person or a nation or a group of people stood up at a very particular time and were fighting against the forces of evil. And in the movie there was some tension as to who was going to win and then the right person wins, of course. That's why you go to see a movie. And uh, it shifts the course of human events or it shifts the course of what's happening in the storyline. And by far the most important battle in human history is actually recorded in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam, who is acting as your representative, Adam, who is acting as my representative, Adam, who is acting as the representative for all of humanity, lost a decisive battle with Satan. And a permanent scar was left on humanity, and a permanent scar actually was left on all of creation. Adam's collapse under temptation, his exchanging the truth of God for a lie, his willingness to serve a created thing rather than the Creator. It's something from Genesis chapter 3 until this very moment that all of the world is wrestling with. 
All of the world is scarred by. All of creation is suffering underneath that one decisive moment back in the garden. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, describes it this way, Romans 5.12, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Consequently, the result of this one trespass was condemnation for all men. You see, this, this one critical moment created a, a, a chasm between God and man. God and man were together in unity, and when this battle was lost in Genesis chapter 3, now battle lines were being drawn. And on one side was God, and on one side was the rest of mankind. One decisive moment in the garden where things were lost. Thankfully, we have the Bible, which is good news, and that is that God himself has come down. He's not going to let Satan have the last word. He's not going to let Adam, the first Adam, have the last word. And so God himself comes down, and he now is going to be a new representative. We've got our old representative, Adam, in which we all live under. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes down, sometimes referred to as the second Adam, to say, I'm setting up a whole new humanity. And if you would like to get underneath my representation, then all you have to do is trust in me. Paul says it this way in Romans 5. For if by the trespass of one man, that's Adam... Death reigned. How much more will those who receive God's grace and the gift of life through one man, Jesus Christ? The result of his one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Many will be made right, made righteousness, made righteous. So you see, you see what's happening both in the Bible and you see what's happening in the world. A decisive battle took place in Genesis chapter 3 between Adam and Eve, mankind's representative, and Satan. And Satan comes into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fall, and with their fall, All of creation and all of humanity falls with Adam and Eve at that moment. And so we're all living in a a scarred world. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. You don't have to be religious to figure that out. You can just read the newspaper and say something massively has gone wrong. And all of humanity is trying to figure out, well, how can we set this right? What can we do to get underneath a new paradigm or a new representation? And the Bible explains what happens. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and He says, I'm going to take care of this problem. And now, if you want to be a part of a whole new creation, you get underneath my representation. But in order for Christ to be the head of a new humanity, he had to defeat Satan and conquer death. And so we see the beginning of that in Matthew chapter 4. 
It's not happening in a garden like it did for Adam. Adam had everything he could possibly imagine except for one thing, and he fell. And Jesus comes in, and now he's in the wilderness, and he has nothing that you would want, and he gets tempted, and yet he's succeeding. And what we're supposed to see by that is that Jesus is in the first stages in Matthew 4 of resisting Satan's temptations. And he ultimately defeats Satan on the cross. And he defeats death by walking out of the tomb. And because Jesus has done these things, then he now uniquely has earned eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. You see how Jesus is setting himself up as somebody completely different than any other person on the world stage, especially as it relates to religion. Jesus is saying, I'm God in the flesh. I understand the problem of this world, and I'm coming to form a whole new humanity, and I'm conquering all the things that Adam and, by representation, you all couldn't conquer, and now you need to trust in me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A whole new creation. See, Paul is, Paul is just trying to contain himself in 2 Corinthians 5.17 saying, you, you're, you're, you lived underneath this old Adam, this old self, and it's ruining your life and it's ruining the world, but Christ has come, the Christ, the Messiah, God Himself, He has come. And you now can live underneath Him, and as you live underneath Him, the old is passing away. You're putting to death the old man that's controlling you, and now you're a whole new creation. And so if you're here this morning as a follower of Christ, you should understand that you've moved from identifying with the first Adam in the old humanity, and now you're moving yourself or you're being moved by Christ into a whole new humanity. That's why when you look at Matthew 4 or other places and you see Jesus, you're not meant to see him just as a model to follow. Let me say that again. When you read Matthew chapter 4 or other places about Jesus, you're not meant to look at the situation and just see that he's a model to follow. Because if, if all Jesus is, is a model to follow, you are going to be, and I am going to be what? Terribly discouraged. Because basically all I'm going to see is that I can't do that. As much as I try, as much as I try to contain this situation and this sin in my life, in my heart, and as hard as I try for an hour or 24 hours or a week, I just can't keep it up. I can't keep following after Christ as a model. I can't, I can't be Him. And so you'd be discouraged if that's all He was. And what we're supposed to look at when we see here is that Jesus is our representative. He, he's taken our place. He understood when He looked at Paul Phillips that Paul Phillips didn't have a chance. Paul Phillips had no hope of just following after a model. 
He needed a whole new representative. And praise the Lord, He has come down and said, Paul, I'll be your perfect representative. Not just your model. I'm your representative before God. So when you get before God, you just need to say, I'm claiming Christ as my representative. I'm not showing God all the things that I've done. I'm just saying, God, please don't look at me. I mean, whatever you do, don't look at me. Just look at Christ. He is my new representative. He's paid. He has been the model that you need to look at. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, then you have to ask yourself, when you come before God at your death, you'll have to represent yourself. I don't, I don't want to represent myself. But if you don't have another representative, you're living underneath the old Adam. And the best you can do is just, here's what I've done. I hope that's good enough. And that would make me terrified. Several years ago, I was on a trip down the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon with some people that I knew and some people that I didn't know. And there was a woman on the trip who in the course of the time going down on the raft, you have lots of times to talk, and found out that she was somebody who believed that there really was a God. But she just didn't believe. She believed Jesus exists. He was a nice model, I guess, but he didn't die for her sins or anybody's sins. And I said, so you do believe that there's a God. One day you've got to stand before that God and write. I said, well... When I stand before that God, I'm going to say, Jesus is my representative. He atoned for my sin by His death on the cross. What are you going to say? And I don't know if she heard her words the way I heard her words, but this is what she said exactly. I will atone for myself. Oh, man. She was right. But why that didn't frighten her, I don't know. Because I don't want to atone for myself. I don't want to have to stand there naked and say, God, you know everything I've thought, you know everything I've done, both good and bad, and I'm just hoping my good pile is a little higher than my bad pile. Because I know myself. My bad pile is way bigger than my good pile. And I'm not going to get in by what I've done. I need a whole new representative for me. Please, can you send somebody on my behalf? Yes, I've come. And so when we look at Matthew chapter 4, we're not looking at Jesus just as a model. We're looking at Him as our representative. Now that's a long introduction to this passage in Matthew 4. But, but you, you must go to this passage and see and savor this before you get anything else out of the passage. Because you could go to it like we've done in the last two weeks and say, well, this is what I can learn about how I get myself ready. And I think that's true. You can learn about how you get yourself ready for temptation. And it's helpful. 
But if you come at the passage thinking you've got to do it all, and you've got to be just like Jesus, then you're just going to be completely discouraged. The first way, when you look at the passage, is say, Okay, He has done it. He won the battle. I'm not winning anything with my life. The battle is over, and He won it permanently. Now, my job is to freely communicate that to as many people as I can. Not to win anything, not to be good enough, but just have the freedom to tell everybody else I come in contact with, whether it's my 45 years of life, or 65 years of life, or 90 years of life, you won't believe it. God has come in the flesh. You have a brand new representative. And I want to be able to communicate that as freely as I can. And I don't want to be captured by the things of this world that might slow me down from proclaiming that good news. And you can find some help for that in Matthew 4 as well. But not about getting yourself to heaven, but about being free to proclaim it. And so that's what we've talked about the last few weeks and we're going to talk about Today, So let me look, let's look again, since that was a long introduction, let's just look again at Matthew 4 and this last temptation beginning in verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Do you I just want you to see, when that happened to you and I, in Adam, what did we say? When Satan says, fall, just take this and fall down and worship me, we said, okay, looks pretty good. And we do that many times during the day. Okay, looks pretty good. We need a new representative. So Satan takes Jesus to a very high place, and I just want you to notice, it's helpful for me to see this week, I think it will be helpful for you, what he shows Jesus. What does he show Jesus? He shows Jesus the kingdoms, all the kingdoms, he just, but he just doesn't show all, all the kingdoms, he shows them in a specific light. What's the light that He shines on the kingdoms? The glorious light. You see, one of Satan's most prominent tricks, one of the ones that we fall to over and over again, is just looking at things in the glorious part. We're just imagining the best parts of things. We're not, we're, Satan is shielding our eyes from all the other ramifications. And so he comes along and says, I know Paul, he'll just be attracted by the shiny, glorious part of this thing. And we just lead him down the path without him able to step back and say, well there's a whole picture here that must be taken in. We get captured by Satan's temptation because he just shows us the one little sliver of good and we don't really understand that there's a, there's a much bigger picture going on here. We don't know what kingdoms are being shown to Jesus, whether they're ones that sort of this in that area or overall time. But let's just assume that, that because we live in America and it's arguably the most powerful nation in the world, Satan sort of just brings up the United States of America. 
And he's showing the United States of America in all of its glory. What would you show? Would you show 2009? 2008? I mean, here's the glorious part of America, 2008. What a wonderful year. I mean, would that be the glorious part that you would show? Would you show the 1960s? Oh, here's where we really were at the top, 1965. I mean, what, what year are you going to choose? You're going to choose 1920? No child labor laws, women can't vote, no civil rights. You can choose 1850 when we had slavery. You can choose 1825 when we had the Trail of Tears and we just ran out the Native Americans and most of them died on their way to a place that they didn't want to go to anyway. I mean, what glorious part of America are you going to bring up and say, this is what's so glorious about it? Now look, I think America is a wonderful country. But you see, there's a real big picture of America. And if you just get shown the tiny little top of America and say, this is everything. Just take this tiny little bite and you don't have any idea what's underneath. Isn't that exactly what happens with lust? Satan comes along. He shows you one little tiny shred of a real relationship. And you say, oh, I want that part. And you run down after it, either physically or in your mind, because it's the glorious part. Never knowing that when you bite into it, all of the things that lie underneath that. You see, it's a very real temptation and we need to be aware of how Satan comes at us. The second thing to note, which was helpful to me about this little statement in verse 8. Jesus, Satan shows Jesus the glorious parts of the world. But what did Jesus come to get? (laughs) Thankfully, not the glorious parts. I mean, I am so glad Jesus didn't come and say, I just want the really good parts of the world. Because who wouldn't have been included? Me! I wouldn't have been the good part. And so Jesus comes and says... Satan, I'm not interested in the glorious parts. I didn't come for the glorious parts. I came for people like Paul Phillips who are inglorious. He's the one that needs help. And so I'm not tempted to irrationally worship you because I might get the glorious part. But Jesus is tempted to do something very irrational. To get what? To get sinners. And what does he do that Paul says is foolishness in this world? (laughs) He dies on a cross. He does something that I think is totally irrational. Why would he do it for me? I have no deserving in myself. It doesn't make any sense. God's heart is moved to do things that are irrational. 
It is irrationally gracious that He would die in my place. And that's exactly what Luke is trying to get across in that very famous chapter in Luke 15. And you remember the three little parables that Luke puts together. You remember that that the shepherd has a hundred sheep, and what happens? One of the sheep somehow gets out. Well, what would you do? One shepherd, you got 99 left, what do you do? Rationality says, just stay here with the 99. But if you're irrationally gracious, you're going to leave those and say, "I, I really came to get the one. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to get that one. And then a woman has ten coins and she loses one. And she empties out her whole house just to try to find this one little coin. And then a man loses his son. And he goes off into a country and spends all of his talent and his time and all of the father's wealth on himself. And it is irrational how the father acts when the son comes back. He runs to him, he kisses him, he embraces, and and he just gives him all of the kingdom back. Take the ring, take the robe, take the sandals. It's irrational how God is acting towards sinners. So when Satan gets up here and tempts Jesus with all the good parts, Jesus could have said, I didn't come for those. Thank you. I came for these. These. That's the good news. And what good news it is. The temptation here, lots of ways to look at it. I want to look at it in this light. It's a temptation to distrust the plan of God. There are lots of ways Satan is tempting Jesus in his statement. But one of the ways is to say, Jesus, the way God has set up, that's not a good way. I've got a better way for you. See, you know from the conversation, Satan knows a lot about the Old Testament. You know from the conversation that Jesus knows a lot about the Old Testament. And so Satan brings Jesus to this high place and effectively is saying, Jesus, you can have, you can have the world right now. You know, Jesus, we both know what the Passover lamb was pointing to, don't we? I mean, I know it. You know it. Don't we both know Isaiah? He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken by God, smitten by Him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. Don't you know that verse, Jesus? Jesus, if you think this 40 days in the wilderness is tough, wait. Just wait. I'm offering you a shortcut. 
Forget the cross. Let's just go right to the crown. You see, God's plan really isn't a good plan. And, and here, for just 1995, I mean, can't you see it? Three easy payments of worshiping me. You can have it right now. Do you, you feel how tempting that is? I wonder how many times in our own suffering we're tempted to rebuke God and effectively say, you know, you're just not going the right way. I don't like your plan. Actually, I want my way right away. If you could just move over and let me steer for a little while, then okay, we can make really we can now make things happen. I, I wonder in your suffering particularly how tempting that is. And there are two spiritual disciplines that I th- think help in this area. One is fasting, learning to say no to your desires. And I've done a sermon on that previously, and so I'm going to pass on that one. You can get that somewhere. But when you're fasting, you're teaching your body to say no. And so that when you have to say no to so much more difficult things, you're ready. Because I've said no to some hard things, so when a harder thing comes on, it's not the first time I've said no. The second thing is worship. Worship helps repel Satan. And I'm going to do a separate series on that in the month of February, so I want to wait on that one as well. Sorry. But I do want to draw us to a conclusion this morning, and I want to do it by looking at Peter in John chapter 21, because Peter sets up a perfect example that I think you and I can relate to. Somebody who just didn't want to travel down the road of suffering, just thought God's plan wasn't the right way, wanted His way right away. And I think all of us can be able, will be able to relate to Peter. And Peter then had to learn to be led into places that he would rather not go. You remember that in Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi is an idle town, let's say. Lots of idol worshiping happening in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his, this little field trip with his disciples on purpose to this place to say, you all know that in this city all kinds of worship of other gods happens. And he sort of stands on the stage of Caesarea Philippi and he's asked his disciples, now you know what the culture says about these idols. You know what I say. Who do you say that I am? You see what he's doing? He's standing on stage with all the other gods and saying, what do you say about me? Am I any different? 
And Peter says, you are the Christ. He makes this very profound statement. The son of the living God. Jesus says, right, you got that right. And then immediately, and for the first time, Jesus begins to tell his disciples, okay, you got that right, here's another thing you need to know, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. And he says to Jesus, that's not where we're going. You're going the wrong way. Thankfully, you have me. And I'm just going to take you aside, Jesus. I'm not going to embarrass you in front of all your friends. I'm going to take you aside and say, wrong way. We're not going that way. And what does Jesus say? Very powerfully. The same thing he says in Matthew 4. Get behind me, Satan. See, Peter, you don't realize it. But you're promoting a worldly framework, a worldly viewpoint, a worldly thought of power. And I don't have that. I'm not going to be tempted by that. I'm going in a different direction. Well, you fast forward into the end of Matthew, Matthew 26, and Peter's there again, and now he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the soldiers are coming on, and guess who pulls out the sword? Peter. He's ready to fight. He lops off one of the guy's ears. And Jesus says, put away your sword. What was Peter saying at that point? Jesus, we're not going that way. This isn't how it's supposed to be. I don't like your plan. I'm taking your plans into my own hands, and I'm going to say which way we're going to go. And then Peter follows Jesus into a courtyard where Jesus is on trial. And a little slave girl, somebody who has no voice and no power, comes up to the big, brave Peter and says, Hey, aren't you one of them? Didn't I see you with Jesus? And what does Peter say? I never met the man. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, if you're going to go to the cross, I'm not going to go there. You see, I think all of us can relate to Peter at some level. Just not interested in going in that direction. It appears as if that's the wrong direction to go. And then Peter has to get reinstated, and it happens in John chapter 21. And three times, just to make sure Peter understands what's happening here, he gets asked by Jesus, do you love me? Peter, let's make sure we get the question down. Do you love me? Are you all about me? Are you interested in going my way? Or do you still want to go your way? Oh God, I want to go your way. Peter, are you sure? I want, I want you to be real sure you're ready to go my way. I'm ready to go your way. Peter, are you super positive? Three times. I'm ready to go. And then Jesus says to Peter, 
You know, if you want to be a leader in my kingdom, then you're just going to have to let go of this world. You're going to have to be captured by the cross instead of the world. You you know, Peter, when you were young, you got to decide. When you were immature, you were deciding what was right. You were at the center. You got to decide which way was the right way. But now you got to mature. It's not about you, Peter. And now you have to be willing to let me lead you to places that you don't want to go. You ready? I am going to lead you to places. I'm going to lead you to families. I'm going to lead you to people groups. I'm going to lead you to countries. I'm going to lead you to relationships. I'm going to lead you to suffering. I'm going to lead you to poverty. I'm going to lead you to disease. I'm going to lead you to be behind the pulpit. I'm going to lead you to places that you don't want to go. You're not signing up for. It's not volunteer anymore, Peter. It's are you ready to go the places that I want to take you? And in your worldview, it's places that you don't want to go. And Peter says, yes, I'll take the cross instead of the crown. And so I'm just thinking, are you ready? Are are you ready? Not to fulfill your own dream. Not to have the family you've always wanted. Not to have the house or the car or the career. Are you ready to go to places you don't want to go? You see, it's a real question for Peter. Because the world is so enticing and saying, Oh, you got to have this. you got to make sure all this is in order. And once you get everything down, then you'll be ready. You'll be flexible to serve. Guess what? They'll be chained. You'll be chained down by all the things that you've got to have first. Jesus said, you don't have to have anything except for me. Are you ready to go? If you're a Christian here this morning, are you ready to go to places you don't want to go? But you're going to let go of the crown in this world and hold on to the cross because the cross in the next world turns into a bigger crown. A whole new creation. You're not worried about being chained down by all the things in this world. You're not entangled by them anymore because you are putting yourself up on the cross. For I have been crucified with Christ. All of my dreams, all of my ambitions, all of my plans, I'm giving them over to the Lord and I'm letting them take me places that I might not rather go. If you're not here, if you're here, if you're not here, if you're not here, you're not here. 
and I really can't speak to you right now. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I really want you to be left with these two things. Who's going to be your representative? You're going to stand before God. Whatever picture you have of Him in your head. And you're either going to be stuck with you, or you can have another representative. But if you want the other representative, you have to be willing to go to places you don't want to go. You can't say, I would like a representative and I would like to do what I'd like to do. That's saying, I don't want a representative. 